Hi, welcome to Wild and Weird. I'm Jenna. And I'm Audrey. Guys, we got on and just hit record, so we haven't even caught up yet. Yeah, how are you doing? Good. Just kind of busy. We had mom and dad in town last weekend, which was good, but they scooted out of here early. Did they? Yeah. That's funny. They're efficient people like that. They are in and out. Mm -hmm. What have you been up to, Jenna? I mean, honestly, a pretty similar situation. I'm staying busy. Had some events this weekend, a wedding, and then one of my friends from college is in town. So, you know, just keeping busy. I forgot you had a wedding this weekend. How was it? I did. It was good. I feel like weddings are always fun. I love weddings. There's cake. There's cake. You normally get dinner. Yeah. You get to party and dance a little bit and hang out with people. And it's like a happy event. You know, of course it's exciting. So I'm generally a big fan. So yeah, it was good. Good. Other than the wedding, I would say my other life update is just that allergies are like hitting me so hard this year. Are they hitting you? Yes. It's the worst. Okay. and. I know we're both, like, not too far away mm-hmm. location-wise and grand scheme of things. I mean, a three-hour drive does still still feel a lot. Mm-hmm. But I feel like my allergies are worse this year, and it sounds like yours are too. But one thing that you guys don't have is the moths. Okay, yes. I need you to tell everyone about the moths. I Did I say anything about this last time? I don't think that we did talk about it. Okay, I know I've talked to you personally about them. Because I think it was before we were recording. Okay, it's been super, super, super dry where I live. It's normally always dry, but it's even worse. And I guess that typically there's like a fungus or something or bacteria in the soil when it rains. But we haven't had rain and that bacteria will kill the larvae of the moths. So it didn't get killed this year. So we have like thousands. That is such a strange situation. I love that you know like the ecosystem change that caused the increase in moths. I looked it up. Uh-huh. Um because I was curious, but like we opened up our basement window. There isn't a screen in the window right now, mm-hmm. and I am not kidding you when I say like 60 came in. That is insane, Audrey. It like to me everything I'm envisioning is like horror movie type of film. Yes. Like why are moths so scary? And they're like worse than a butterfly. If I was attacked by butterflies, whatever. Oh my gosh, a dream, honestly. I'd love butterflies. A moth? They're so scary and you can hear them sometimes. Stop. No. Like at the window. That's so freaky. It's so freaky, but I'll have to show you sometime if you come out here soon. Yeah. I'm really hoping that they die off soon because I'm not a fan. 
And there's like no way to let the dogs in and out without getting without them in getting the house. In. And then no matter what you do throughout the rest of your day and night, the moths are just flying at the light bulbs in your house. Mm-hmm. That's what happens. But I'll only ever have like one moth at a time if I let my dog out at night or something and they saw the light and flew in. I can't imagine having like dozens of them around. That's so freaky. Well, and then our cat is just launching herself at the wall trying to get them. I love her. I thought that maybe you guys would have some too because we're not really that far apart. But mom and dad were like, no, we do not have that issue. Yeah, not at all. It's bad out here. Dude, that is so wild. It really does feel super eerie, like haunted house, Mm -hmm. horror movie type of energy. I just can't believe that's a thing. So it's all because it didn't rain enough. It didn't rain at, like, all. Yeah, you guys need some water. Is this what our podcast has come to, talking about the weather and bugs? I mean, honestly, I find your moth situation riveting, so... It's kind of freaky. Like, I need to send you a video. Okay, please do. That would be so fascinating. There's something about that which is just so strange, so I can't even envision it, but... Yeah, I guess so. That's kind of evidence of how boring our lives are when it's like, well... I know. Rain. We need rain. But I'll take it. I'd rather have it boring than, like, crazy and... Bad stuff, yeah. Yeah. No, that's so true. I don't mind boring. That's why I think that I gravitate towards the Real Housewives, because they have so much drama, and I have, like, no drama. Mm-hmm. You live vicariously through them? Yeah, but then I can turn it off. Yes, yes. You get to, yeah, control your drama exposure. Yeah. But okay, speaking of drama real quick. Uh Uh-huh. I'm just going to derail the podcast for like a short few minutes. I promise that we'll get back to wild and weird things. But something that's wild that is not podcast related at all is Tom Sandoval from Vanderpump Rules. The Scandoval. Which we have not talked about in a long time. Right? I'm sure that most people know about it. But in case you didn't, there's a reality show called Vanderpump Rules, and there's like a huge cheating scandal that happened on the show. And this guy, Tom Sandoval, cheated on his girlfriend, Ariana. And they aired the episode last night where you like found out about the affair. It was insane. Well, and not just girlfriend, but girlfriend of like... 10 years. Yeah. Like life partner. Very committed to each other. With one of her really good friends. Right? It's so hard to summarize it and like get everything across where it's like, no, this is a big deal. It was just crazy to watch it all play out. And he did himself no favors, which is great. None at all. And he needs no empathy. Well, it was just crazy. You would think that when someone gets caught cheating that they would, like, be super remorseful and, like, apologizing and stuff, but he was just there to, like, justify his actions. He's like, well, I didn't tell her about the affair because she didn't want to know. Like, obviously, no one wants to hear that they got cheated on. I'm sorry. Yeah, she was just being really nice to me and we hit it off. Okay, break up with your girlfriend before you guys start, like... Yeah, Doing things together. Yeah. He's like, I always intended to break up with her, but your affair was seven months. Like, I'm pretty sure you had ample opportunity. Yeah. It's crazy. It was wild. 
the um, reunion will be out this week, so don't worry. I'm sure we'll be back with more next week. It's almost so wild we should just do an episode about it. I mean, we really could. It's a fascinating situation. Yeah. And we've always been Vanderpump Rules fans. So when we heard about this, it was like, oh my gosh, they just rocked our world. Our little Mm -hmm. reality TV world. But let's just say Wild and Weird is Team Ariana. No questions. All day, every day. Mm Mm-hmm. But anyway, we can get off of like Bravo reality Vanderpump Rules corner. But we'll probably be back next week with more. Always. Just so the world knows. Yes. But Jenna, it's my turn to tell you a story. Yes, I'm so curious what you've brought today. So, Jenna, have we done a survival story yet? Oh my gosh, we haven't. Okay. Oh wow, I'm excited. This is a survival story, and this is the survival story of Colby Combs. So he was a mountain climber, and on June 14th, 1942... Colby, who was 25 at the time, along with two other climbers, Tom Walters, 34, and Britt Kellogg, 28, set out to climb Alaska's Mount Foraker. Before they were able to reach the summit, disaster struck when weather suddenly changed. So. That's so scary. We've never been to Alaska. No. That's someplace I really want to go. Yeah, I don't think it's somewhere I really want to go mountain climbing, though. I'm scared of that piece. But, like, I'd love to see it. Yes, I would love to go to Alaska. Not really interested in the dangerous things about Alaska. Yeah, it it seems more wild than other places. Yeah. You know? And so that sounds more scary. I think some of that wild and, like, uncharted territory stuff and, like, the wilderness and remoteness of all of it really draws people to Alaska. Yeah, I can see that. Like, these three hikers decided to climb a mountain that, like, only 50 people a year climb. That's insane. Yeah. See, I think that's part of what makes it seem scarier, is that if it's not, like, a well-traveled path, then you know that there's going to be, obviously, more difficulty in, like, finding how to get where you're going. But also, there's not, like, infrastructure for rescues in the same way that there would be at a lot of, like, national parks and, like, heavily traveled areas. There's also, like, not as many people on the path where if something happens, someone's going to come across you in a few hours or the next day, you know? Yes, and they could help you. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I totally agree. That sounds scary. To give you some background, Colby was a very experienced climber, even though he was only 25 at the time, and he was working as an instructor for the National Outdoor Leadership School at the time he was set to climb Mount Foraker. He also believed that education played a very large role in his experience and other people's experiences in the outdoors and had taken a wilderness first responder course every year since 1985. Okay, I love someone who does preparation. I feel like that's such a good mindset. I know. He had been taking the course since he was 18, so he'd taken it every year for the last seven years. That's a lot. And the mountain they were set to climb that day was Mount Foraker, a 17,400-foot mountain that's in the central Alaskan mountain range in Denali National Park. Mount Foraker is the second highest peak in Alaska, the third highest in the U.S., and the sixth highest in North America. So this is, like, a serious mountain. I was gonna say, that sounds very tall. Right? Yeah, I'm already intimidated. 
The north peak of the mountain was the shorter of the two peaks, um, and it was climbed first on August 6, 1934, and the south peak, which is the highest of the two, was climbed four days later on August 10, 1934, by three climbers. So that wasn't even that long before they were climbing it. No. So it's like 60 years later, and the original climbers climbed via the west ridge uh-huh. um, of the mountain, which is more traveled. But there are some other more common routes that people typically take while climbing Mount Foraker. Climbers often ascend the southeast or southwest side of the mountain or the Sultana Ridge. The Sultana Ridge offers protection from hanging avalanches. And this route is where many guided climbs go um, and where you can currently take a guided climb. It's crazy that that's a factor you have to consider. Just the like protection from hanging avalanches. Clearly, this is not, like, a hobby of mine. Right? Yeah. Like, an avalanche. I feel like avalanches, quicksand, stuff like that, I thought would be more of an issue in my life. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that they're not, and I don't really want them to become an issue. Yeah, I'm very happy working to avoid all of those. Yes. So, Colby, Tom, and Britt did not take the Sultana Ridge, but instead were planning to ascend via the Pink Panther route which was first climbed eight years earlier in 1984. This path takes you up the east face of the mountain and then up the southeast ridge to the summit. The three set out on June 14th to climb Mount Foraker via the Pink Panther route with some variation from the original route that was climbed in 1984. They were tied together while climbing up the 50-degree slope with Tom in the front, then Colby, then Ritt, and there was approximately 150 feet between each of the climbers but they were climbing kind of in unison. So they all moved up together, even though they were in a staggered place on the mountain. Mm -hmm. And they were not belaying, so there was no belay anchors placed in the mountain or in the ice. So instead, they were just kind of free climbing up the mountain. They're free climbing, but attached to each other. Yes, so they're not putting any anchors in and putting their ropes through the anchors. Stop. They're just free climbing, and the only thing keeping them together is the rope. Oh my gosh, Audrey, I'm straight having like a visceral reaction to this. I'm so scared of heights. That is a nightmare. And I almost feel like being tied to each other is a negative thing then. Because if one of you falls, you're just going to pull the other ones down, right? Like there's no way they can catch you. So they're still climbing with like, can't think of what it's called, but like they have the things on their shoes to help them. They have like the ice picks and things. So like they have something to help grasp them to the ice. They just aren't putting in anchors that are stationary that, like, their rope goes through. Okay. So, in theory, if one falls and the others have a good, secure hold hold where they are, then they'd fall and be caught hanging on the rope by the other two versus just, like, free falling. And then they have 150 feet of rope that they have to, like, climb up or whatever rather than just falling to your death. That's true. Well, and I forget that if you're climbing ice, if you're falling, like, you can, like, throw your axe as you're falling or whatever, like, the ice pick that they're using. And then that could probably slow their fall, too. I'm already so nervous. See, I would be the person putting an anchor every five feet, and they're like, why did you go through 2,000 anchors? Yes. I don't know. Yeah. Safety. That's (laughs) so exactly who I am. So, June 14th started out as a nice day, and their original ascent was pretty nice with good weather and good visibility. 
On the morning of June 16th, they postponed their climb due to poor weather, but the weather cleared up through the day, and they began climbing the Cornice Ridge. They climbed through the night into the morning of the 17th, where they arrived at the base of the final rock buttress, which is the last one-third of the route that they would have to climb. They were climbing a lot faster in the times that they were actually climbing than most people and would climb for about 20 hours at a time, but they did have to postpone multiple times due to weather. So there were times where they wanted to start earlier in the day, but they couldn't due to the weather. So instead, they just kind of pushed through the night. Yeah, 20 hours worth of climbing sounds like an eternity. I just can't believe that they didn't, like, fall from fatigue. I'm sure they, like, take breaks or whatever as they reach different points. But, man. It does just seem like a long time to be climbing. But, honestly, in those things, you're trying to, like, push as hard as you can while you do have good weather. So, they were just trying to get as far as they possibly could and then rest when they were having bad weather. So, and ultimately, it's like a five-day trek. And so, if you push through, like, 20 hours at a time, you might get it done in four and then you're done. Yeah, that's true. I can see that side. So, on the 17th, they decided to stop because of weather. And they built a snow cave and decided to just wait out the weather. The weather was again poor the next morning, um, the morning of June 18th. But in the early evening, the weather cleared up and they began to climb the final rock buttress. The weather remained good until the final 300 feet of the climb. They were getting close to a cliff band, um, and the weather suddenly changed. The wind began to pick up, and it picked up a lot faster and at a higher rate than normal, and visibility decreased at a significant pace. So it went from them having like clear skies, and then all of a sudden wind picks up, and they can't even see the hiker in front of them. That's so scary. Yeah, that would freak me out. Yeah, I hate that. Colby felt the rope go slack from Walter, who was in front of him, and leading the pack. He looked up to see a wave of snow as it hit him in the head. He said, I remember sliding really fast and trying to self-arrest, then hitting something and going airborne. That's when I passed out. Oh, shit. That would be terrifying, like, looking up and just seeing, like, an avalanche of snow coming at you. Yeah. No, that's so terrifying. Yeah. I can't imagine. No, I can't even watch movies that are like this because it stresses me out too much. Well, buckle in, girl. Oh, dear. He came to six hours later and about 800 feet or 240 meters farther down the mountain, hanging from his safety rope. What? He was in a lot of pain from the fall and had lost his mittens as well as his pack. That's not good. No. Tom Walter was on the other end of the rope as a counterweight, keeping Colby from falling even farther. Tom's face was covered with snow to the point where you couldn't make out his features, and Colby knew that he was dead. Oh no. Rick Kellogg, on the other hand, had been separated from the group and wrapped in his safety rope and had fallen farther than the other two, unfortunately falling to his death. I should have seen this coming, since you said it was just one person's survival story. But, but you never do. I do. You always hope that they live. I know. That's so sad. So Colby was the only survivor from this fall, and he had suffered many injuries. He had broken his left ankle, his left scapula, which is kind of his shoulder blade. He had broken two vertebrae in his neck and suffered a concussion. He was unable to turn his head due to pain and couldn't even sit up or move to, like, reclining because of pain. Despite all of his injuries, he was able to get to a small ledge where he found Tom's sleeping bag 
and crawled inside to warm up and rest. He didn't know he had a concussion at this point, so even though you're not supposed to sleep after a concussion, he was in so much pain, he rested. Yeah. And, like, at that point, like, doing what is best for your body is better than, like, a rule about a concussion, you know? Yeah, well, because you still have to get help and find your way off of the mountain. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot. Also, yeah, he probably didn't realize he had a concussion, so he no. wouldn't even know. And he didn't even realize that his helmet was shattered from the fall until after he had woken up. Shoot. Yeah. A shattered helmet? Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. Which means that he really hit his head on the way down. Yeah. But it's also good that he had it because otherwise it would have just been damaged to his head. Yeah. After waking up, he rappelled farther down the mountain where Rit was and confirmed that his friend had died. He then tried to gather this, what supplies he could. Um, so he kind of gathered some from Tom and Rit, mm -hmm. and he tried to melt snow to drink as well as prepare food. With his injuries, to prepare his food and water and get prepared to try and descend the mountain, it took him 36 hours. Oh my gosh. That sounds like such a nightmare. It would just be a miserable 36 hours. Yeah, and like it would be miserable baseline just doing that experience. But he also just lost two of his friends. Like, how mm -hmm. devastating. But it's like, do I die too, you know? Yeah, I feel like then you have to be really motivated to, you know, make it out. But that's just so much to process. Yeah, like, kind of block it out at that moment instead. Yeah, just focus on surviving. Yeah. He started his descent on the southeast ridge of the mountain knowing it would be his only escape and that he couldn't stay where he was. Colby was unfamiliar with this path and had never taken it before. With each step he took, he was in agonizing pain from his broken ankle and had to focus on every single step very carefully to ensure that he wouldn't take a misstep and fall. He is later quoted as saying, I remember thinking, I don't care if my foot falls off. I had to get into an unstoppable mentality. Wow, I can't even imagine. Right? Wouldn't that be crazy? Mm -hmm. His descent down the southeast ridge took him six very slow, moving, and painful days. He would occasionally stop to melt snow to drink and rest. His frayed safety rope would snag on rocks as he was going down the mountain, and at one point he slipped on the ice and stopped himself from falling by grabbing a rock. Considering he had a broken ankle, a broken shoulder, and two broken bones in his neck, this was extremely painful for him not only almost falling, but the entire trek down the mountain. And he couldn't turn his head. Yeah, and you know that those injuries are probably just getting worse. Mm-hmm. As, you know, because he's doing something super physical and also not getting any treatment for those injuries. So I'm sure they just get worse and worse over time. That sounds so horrifying. And, like, it's amazing that he wasn't paralyzed from it. Yeah, honestly. I'm so impressed by his, like, will to make all of that happen and to, like, persist. I know. And, like, we have no reason to complain, I guess. Yeah. After six very slow days hiking down the mountain in excruciating pain, he finally reached the Cahiltna Glacier and walked across its crevice fields to the airstrip camp. There he was spotted by a search plane, which dispatched a rescue party. I'm glad that someone saw him. I know, and he had to go, like, across all the crevices, which would terrify me, because those sometimes are, like, 
hundreds of feet yes of just like a drop that's so scary after colby was found he was rushed to the hospital where his injuries were assessed and he had to spend three months in a wheelchair and three months on crutches after that he eventually made a full recovery despite being out in the elements for over a week he did not lose any body parts to frostbite wow i'm so shocked by that isn't that crazy? Yeah, I'm glad he didn't because obviously that would be so horrifying. But I expected that to happen too. I guess it's good considering especially that he had so many other injuries that he wasn't dealing with crazy frostbite as well. Yeah, and I'm guessing that he um, took like what he could from Tom and Rit because like he lost his mittens and he mm-hmm. lost his pack and stuff. So After finding out that they had died, you have to take what you can to survive. So luckily he was able to take some of their supplies to hopefully keep himself one warm and two fed Mm -hmm. and protected on his way down. But it would still be really hard to take that off of your dead friend. Yeah, it would be. You know, though, that those friends would want to help him. Like it's what Mm -hmm. they would want to um but yeah i can only imagine like i can't i can't even fathom how difficult that would be yeah but at least it like really did serve him yeah because he didn't get frostbite no and he made a full recovery after breaking like so many bones yeah that's crazy the search plane that saw him also spotted tom walter's ice pick planted in the ice only 100 feet from the ridge top where they were climbing to And that would have taken them to safety, unfortunately. Stop. So it's just like, it was just like the wrong time, you know, like, like perfect timing for Mother Nature that the wind picked up and everything where if it would have been later, they possibly would have been all the way at the ridge top. Yeah, if they had like just a little more time. That's devastating. And unfortunately, Tom and Ritz bodies were never found. That, I mean, it's hard to find a body on a mountain. And then what do you do to get them back down, you know? Yeah. Colby believes that, quote, Tom must have climbed into a wind deposit avalanche slab near Ridgeline. Because of the zero visibility, we didn't know what we were climbing into. Mm. So they were just trying their best. And with the low visibility, they couldn't really see. And so they unfortunately got into an area that had an avalanche or like more likely to have an avalanche and especially after poor weather conditions earlier in the week with some snow it was just like a perfect storm for that to happen to them unfortunately he also thinks that they should have camped out at the buttress of the mountain rather than pushing through and continuing to climb he says it would have been a tough sell at the time if we had talked about the risks of poor visibility, and the possibility of walking unknowingly into an unstable slab, maybe we would have forced ourselves to dig a cave. Instead, we kept climbing. Optimism was our mistake. That's so sad. That quote, optimism was our mistake, like, breaks my heart. A hundred percent. I feel like climbing is kind of one of those, like, adrenaline junkie things, Mm -hmm. where, like, you want to get to the summit. You want to be the one to do it where others haven't and sometimes you push yourself a little bit farther Mm -hmm. because of that and unfortunately in this situation it just didn't end up going well for them yeah i mean i think that it's one of those things where part of why you have adrenaline is because it's high risk Mm -hmm. and it's high reward but when things go wrong obviously like the risk can be death 
it can happen to anyone because these were three very experienced climbers who had climbed in the Denali before. And it just so happened to be that they made a mistake, not knowingly. Yeah, just like the circumstances. Yeah, it ended up costing the two of them their lives. That's so sad, but I feel like it's so, like, powerful to hear the story of how Colby pushed his way out and, like, his will to Mm -hmm. live really did win out. Yeah, so he actually has some tips in case you're kind of in a life-or-death situation while climbing or in any other situation where it's life or death. Okay. If you lose consciousness, try not to move after you regain consciousness until after you have assessed the situation. You could be seriously injured on unstable ground or hanging from a rope. Oh. Which is how he was, so that's a really important thing. That's insane that he woke up hanging from a rope. What? So another one is come up with a plan for your evacuation. Don't move unless there's immediate danger or threat or if you know that no one knows your location. So he knew that no one really knew where he was, and it was immediate danger and threat because there could have been another avalanche at Mm -hmm. that time. Control your fear by constantly avoiding thoughts of dying. Control your pain by disassociating yourself from your body. Control your emotions by waiting to deal with them until later, and promise yourself that you will not give up until you have done everything in your power to make it home alive. Wow. He also says that, Courage is really controlled fear, and fear is good as long as it does not turn into panic, which I think is really important. Yeah. No, all of this is such valuable perspective and advice, especially for people, I mean, for anyone, but especially for people who do like to do those more high adrenaline type of events. And so that is like really valuable information for him to be able to share, you know? Yeah. I even think that the last one, the courage is really controlled fear mm-hmm. and um, fear is good as long as it does not turn into panic is good because yeah. like even an accident situation or something. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, it's such a unique perspective. And then I'm like, how do I panic about the most minor things in my life? Like maybe I really need to learn how to control it better so that it's I have courage. Yeah, I like that quote though. Yeah, that's powerful. After making a full recovery, Colby Coombs continued to climb. He became the owner of the climbing school that he was working with at the time of the accident. He's also the co-founder and manager of Alaska Mountaineering School, which he co-founded with his wife, Caitlin Palmer, and they live in Talkeetna, Alaska, with his wife and daughter. In total, Colby has completed over 30 summits in the Denali and has climbed all over the world. If you would like to climb Mount Foraker, Alaskan Mountaineering School has a guided climb that you can complete. You would take the Sultana Ridge. It's a very advanced climb and it takes 22 days and costs $11,500. But if you would also like to climb it, which I don't think that I gave anyone any reason to believe that they should, but if you want to, you can. And it's actually owned, like that company is owned by Colby himself. That's crazy. I can't believe he still kept climbing. Yeah, it's crazy. I love that you do a plug for Colby at the end. It's like, I know nobody wants to go climbing now, but we can all support Colby. Bye. Well, I'm just thinking, (laughs) personally, if I was climbing that mountain, I'd rather do it with Colby. That is so true. I would too. That's one of the only things that would make me feel safer. 
Right. <laughs> but that is insane. I'm glad that it didn't keep him from pursuing this passion of his, you know? The, like, mm-hmm. he still kept climbing. I just cannot fathom how he was able to do that. Yeah, I think it's just, like, his personality and obviously he had a lot of drive considering he pushed through all of those mm-hmm. injuries to make it down the mountain. And I think that that pushed him even more into climbing in ways. But I do think that's cool that he stuck with it. Yeah. Instead of letting it, like, break him, you know? Yeah, I can't believe that. I'm so impressed by him. And he was 25 at the time. A 25-year-old. That, that is a baby child. Um, Let me shout out my sources for you, oh, Jenna. yeah. So I had Avalanche Weather Alaska Mount Foraker by the American Alpine Club, a story from Bushcraft Buddy Colby Coombs' Nine Days with Broken Bones, an article from The Backpacker, Fighting Death on Mount Foraker, and then I had multiple from the Alaskan Mountaineering School, which is the one that Colby and his wife own together. And then I did use Wikipedia to find out some more information about Mount Foraker, but there was actually not a Wikipedia on this event, which I thought was kind of interesting. But yeah, so that's the story of Colby Coombs. Audrey, that was such a crazy story. I can't get over it. I feel like that shifted my perspective for the day. I mean, probably for longer. But it just is crazy to think like how little your problems are. Yeah, next time I'm freaking out, I'm just going to be like, fear is courage. Courage is fear. Yeah, it's like all about controlling your fear. That's yeah, so wild. Just such a crazy perspective. Yeah, I thought it was kind of cool. Yeah, that was such a good story. Well, thank you, Gemma. I Thanks really for short notice recording with me because I texted Jenna about five minutes before we recorded. Hey, are you free? <laughs> I mean, I kind of like it. It's extra fun to be like, okay, we're doing this now. All right. Yeah, right now. Yeah, and then I was like, what's she going to tell me? And Audrey was ready early. Okay, ready early to record. That doesn't mean the episode will be ready early. So we'll see. I have faith. But that was a wild story. Well, thank you. So I'm glad that I got to hear it. I really like survival stories. Thanks. Maybe we'll do some more in the future. But thank you all for listening. Um, We'll catch you on the next one. So stay wild, stay weird. Okay, bye. Bye. Bye.